Morning, everyone. Everyone, all right? It's good to be together again. Um, hopefully, not half eleven yet, isn't it? Just waiting to see who walks in. Half eleven. I'll get the first few. Don't worry, I won't point them out or anything. <laughs> um, we just uh, just just left our ties and offerings as we're <clears throat> um, get, getting into this this morning. I'll do a brief introduction here, and then we're going to crack on a little bit further into this series. Um, the series is. If you're not aware yet, unfolding the Great Commission, and uh, we are um, obviously that's basically a study on the Book of Acts in the Bible, um, but we're going to break that up into little subsections over the next year probably. And so this subseries of um, unfolding the Great Commission is um, a subseries called Origins, looking right back at the early church and the origins, um, <clears throat> exploring the key characteristics and early patterns of the church in the book of Acts. And so um, for those of us who are a wee bit more left brain and linear thinking, here's just a bit of a kind of previous, some of the points that we have um, landed so far. The gospel of Luke, uh, which Luke wrote, was then, he also wrote as a two-part series, the book of Acts as well. And what we've learned is that he architected this gospel, he wrote it in a particular way, and in a patterned way, in a careful way, he actually introduces it. If you read the first few verses of Luke, it says that he had done a careful investigation. And they reckon Luke was a doctor, don't they? Um, he'd done a careful investigation so that he could um, give us an orderly account of selected events. Right? So we really thought about the way. And so we want to get on, in underneath his skin a little bit and what he was saying. We uh, kicked off <clears throat> the book of Acts by looking at the Pentecost, which comes very soon. The moment that the church was birthed by the Spirit, we, so we realized that the church was a supernatural initiation. Something happened outside of reason and rationale, if you want to put it like that. It was miraculous. The Holy Spirit, something beyond these um, disciples, uh, came upon them and endued them with power from on high. And we'll see that the Spirit continues to be the leader of the church right throughout. The, the dunamis nature of the Spirit initiated and catalyzed what we call genuine apostolic movement, right? So we want to think about the church's movement. It should never have got stuck, and it shouldn't get stuck. There is a catalyzing dynamic by the Spirit at the heart of the church. And once it becomes over-institutionalized, it often loses its heart. We said the church walked in the way, right? right? Not, not just the belief system, but the way they walked in the way of the founder. That's what we're going to get into more of today. And so the implications of Pentecost, the Spirit being poured out, were both wide. This was for all people of all ages, this new kind of dispensation of grace, if you want to put it like that, for all flesh. And it was also deep. The Spirit was poured out in such a way that um, the love of God was poured deep into the hearts of men and women, and they were totally transformed. And in that, they started to love one another in a depth of community, covenantal community, the same kind of love that Jesus had showed them in a very deep way, that everyone on the outside looked at this new community and wanted in, basically. They were like, what is going on there? The early reports over the first two or three hundred centuries, I think, were the little phrase that they said often was, see how they love one another. That's what the outside world said about the church. 
And, um, and so we could sum that up by saying the church was a family on mission. It wasn't a family or mission, and it wasn't a family even and mission. It was a family on mission. It was both deep and wide. That's some of the language that we want us to really get. I'll get my phone here so I can keep an eye on time and not read Facebook. <laughs> okay. And this, 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 so we're going to read, I know we've been reading this most weeks, but let me, let me just read it again, okay, because uh, we want to just center ourselves around uh, the biblical text. It says us in, in Acts chapter 2, this is what it describes, after Pentecost, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day the people who were being saved. <clears throat> so we want to continue to reflect on this beautiful scripture and keep on asking ourselves what the implications and applications for us are. How do we, as a local church, locate our story here as Emmanuel Porter Town in the big story of God and the unfolding of the Great Commission? And so over the last number of weeks, we've explored the level of devotion. That's where we are in this origins kind of part, right? The level of devotion that the early church had because they were devoted to a number of things. And I just want to remind you that any movement any movement, like we live in a, we live in a, in a world today where this is all the buzzword, you have things going viral and da-da-da, right? The, the kind of, the big secret is Pentecostalism in the last 100 years is the biggest movement that's happened in the face of the earth, okay, right? And so Christianity, which reminds us that Christianity itself at its very heart is a dynamic movement, right? Nothing, I'm going to build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And movement is catalyzed by not even just simply a belief system. It's, it's, it's catalyzed by hearts that are on fire with the love for Jesus. We've used that little phrase. Um, the research that's been done tells us that any movement is catalyzed by white hot faith. Um, and uh, this, is, um, this is a great quote. Movements that change the world may eventually come to possess resources, learning, and power but they do not begin with these things. Missionary movements begin with men and women who encounter the living God and surrender in loving obedience to His call. It's white, hot love that fuels the movement. And that's why we want to keep orientating around that and keep being challenged by these scriptures, that we don't end up in some dry form of religion, but that white, hot love continues to fuel the movement. And this love for Jesus was expressed in devotion to certain practices. And the only reason they were devoted to certain practices was because they were devoted to Jesus. He had captivated their hearts. And, uh, and so this word devoted is a beautiful word. It means uh, love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a person or activity. It had the connotations of being persisting in, they busied themselves with, or they persevered in. And the form of the verb devoted in this particular passage makes it clear that it was an ongoing practice, right? Their love drove them on. And the things that we have looked at already that they were um, devoted to was prayer, 
we've, we've explored that, the ongoing desire to gather around the presence of Jesus, reveal to them how, reveal to them now through the Holy Spirit. Communion, Bruno took us through that, did a brilliant job reminding us of how the disciples reminded themselves as they came around the, 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 the bread and the cup, the sacrificial selfless way that Jesus had called them to and ultimately revealed to them on the cross. And then Debbie, a few weeks ago, also did a brilliant job of unpacking this word fellowship, that when we talk about fellowship in the church now, it's mean what we just simply do after church, which is brilliant. Or when I grew up, it was tea and scones that only ever the women, by the way, buttered, right? And passed along, right? And fellowship became this very narrow-minded, fundamental kind of little thing that you just did. Oh, it's good to have fellowship together. But this was much, much deeper, much bigger, much broader, much more beautiful. This was one-minded commitment to one another and to the purposes that Jesus had called them to. And so what we've been trying to bring across, and why I want to take a moment just to re-emphasize this, is that they weren't into these practices in some ethereal, kind of pious, religious way. They were into these practices because they were into Jesus. They weren't really into prayer. They were into Jesus. So they prayed. Yeah? That's the heart of what we want to get at. And this resulted in a whole new way of life because Jesus had taught the disciples a new way of living. And these were the practices often that Jesus practiced himself, and they helped as the disciples practiced them themselves, form them into the person of Jesus. Remember this. This is really crucial. The early Christians were known for the way they lived, not simply for what they believed, right? That is really crucial for us to get a hold of here. They were known for the way they lived, not simply for what they believed. And we're going we're gonna to really push into that this morning because so much of us, not to get off on a whole tangent here, because so much of our thinking is, is, um, is influenced, not necessarily from the early church, but from the Enlightenment and other kind of things that actually have made us feel that if we can just get the things in our head and they all stack up, then we can believe that thing and then we're in. And often it doesn't really make that much of a difference in our lives. The early church were known for what it did in their lives and the kind of lives it started to produce and how they were a witness to the watching world. And so the fourth thing, the kind of one that's missing from this, is what I want to look at this morning and maybe a wee bit next week, which was the first one mentioned in the passage that I read. They were devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What on earth does that mean? What was the apostles' doctrine? What was the apostles' teaching? It's something I've really enjoyed studying over the last number of years. Um, in the past, when I would have taught on the book of Acts, or we did a series, and we got to this part, usually, um, for those of us who've been around the church, you know, when you did a study on the book of Acts, you know, they kind of always taught, teach a little bit in prayer, a little bit in communion, a little bit in fellowship, and then the apostles' teaching. And I always kind of just assumed that that meant, like, good evangelicals, they read their Bibles. They did their quiet times. That's what the apostles' doctrine must have meant. They kind of gathered around and did their little quiet time. Or maybe did like small group the way we do small groups, you know, where somebody reads the Bible. But there's a bit of an issue with that. And the issue is this. They didn't have a Bible, right? They certainly didn't have a New Testament, obviously, right? They didn't have that. And they, most of them couldn't read. And they certainly didn't have their own copies of the Bibles, right? So think about that for a moment. They were committed to the Apostles' Doctrine, but they didn't have a new, they didn't have a new Testament. Most of them couldn't read. 
And even if they had, even if they knew the Old Testament, which they probably did, they didn't have their own copy. So how on earth were these early on fire, white hot for Jesus Christians committed to the apostles' doctrine? What on earth could that mean? What is devotion to the apostles' doctrine? What does it look like? And if they were good Jews, schooled in the Torah and in the Old Testament, how was this apostles' doctrine unique and distinct from the old? That's what we're going to look at today. These are some of the questions that we're going to try our best to answer, okay? So the first one is this. Um, what? We're going to look at the what and the how, okay? That's what we're going to do this morning. What was the apostles' doctrine? The apostles' doctrine was the story of Jesus and his teachings. That's what the apostles' doctrine was. And then let me try and unpack this a little bit more. We, we have talked about um, how we believe as a church on the apostolic grace of the church, the apostolic movement. We're the sent out ones. It's a mission and impulse right at the very heart of the church. We're, it's a send, we're a sending church, right? And we, we have talked a lot about how we believe that the apostolic grace is alive today and how we believe that there's still apostles today and God raises that kind of grace up. But there was a certain uniqueness about the original apostles. We might call them apostles with a capital A, okay? And the reason that we do that is because they are qualified in a way that most of us aren't, in that they saw the risen Jesus, right? They actually saw the risen Christ. They, they witnessed him with their own eyes. John, in his letter, he could say um, something along the lines, paraphrasing, the one we have seen and touched and heard with our own eyes, ears, whatever else, right? With his own senses, he'd seen the risen Lord. And, um, and so the, the apostles had seen and known the story of Jesus, and the, the apostles' doctrine was simply, but powerfully, to pass this story of Jesus on. This is what the apostles' doctrine is. And this, of course, was the Great Commission, right? Because if you look at Matthew 28, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus speaking to the disciples before, the, before he goes back to heaven, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And look, teach them. Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. If you ask right, a Christian, many Christians who have been Christians for years, to say, I want you to go and disciple a new convert in the things that Jesus commanded them, there's a lot of people who couldn't do that. Because we've never necessarily taken time to think, what did Jesus actually teach? But this, is, this isn't just for the apostles. This is for everyone, right? And so Jesus was teaching and saying to the disciples, I want you to go and make disciples. And part of that will mean baptizing them into their gospel identity, sons and daughters of the Father, followers of Jesus, and filled with the power of the Spirit. And then I want you to teach them to obey everything I commanded. They need to walk in my way. The only way the Great Commission was going to unfold was through the story of Jesus. A new community, a whole new humanity was being formed solely around the person of Jesus. Just try for a moment to take all the fluff and all the bump and all the superficial kind of stuff we've attached to the church. And think about this. This was a new community, a ragtag bunch of men and women, most of them 
very working class in the middle of Jerusalem, a minority sect persecuted in fear of their lives, trying to order their whole lives around the way of this rabbi that had walked amongst them for three years. And they were trying to pass that story on. This is the story of the church. Wouldn't it be great just to get back to that? I remember hearing a story, uh, it wasn't a story, it was real life. Francis Chan, who some of you know, who, who's, who's written a few books and all, I don't know loads about him. But what, what, what I was really impressed with a number of years ago, he's leading this massive big kind of mega church in America. And he decided just to stop <laughs> and move in to like an area where there was just a big block of apartments and said, what if we could just start all over again with the Bible? Read the book of Acts and just try and live this stuff out with my family. Challenging. Because sometimes all our measures of success, even in the church, don't necessarily weigh up with this story that we find. And so this new cross-shaped community was wanting to stay connected to Jesus. Jesus was the founder of the movement. And it was through the apostles, right, big A apostles, it was through their teaching because their lives were immersed in Jesus. For three years, they had apprenticed this man every day. They'd left everything to follow this man. For three years, they've been apprenticed and immersed in the life of Jesus. And now what they're passing on is his story and his teachings. That's what we mean when we say we want to walk in the way of Christ and his apostles. Something is being passed on. And why I really want us to get this, I hope this isn't dry this morning, because why I really want us to get this is we want to be people that connect our lives and how we live them to the teachings of the founder of this movement. We don't just go to Emmanuel Portadown. I know that's the language that we use, but we're caught up in the movement of a Nazarene rabbi who everybody thought was just a carpenter, but we say, no, he was the Messiah. He was the son of the living God, the one that the prophets have been talking about. This was the story that they were passing on, and this is why it's important for us to feel connected to that. So the apostles' doctrine, this is what I want us to get, was not what we may call Reformation theology. The apostle doctrine was not, as good as it is, the little four-point thing that we got about how to come to Jesus. The apostles' doctrine was not primarily the sinner's prayer, as good as that is. The apostles' doctrine was not, if you don't get saved, you're going to hell. That was not the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine was the story of Jesus Christ and his lordship. That's what it was. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and he's coming back again. That is the good news of his kingdom coming. So I'm not saying all those other things aren't unimportant. They, 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 they may well be important, but that's not what the Bible was talking about when it talks about the apostles' doctrine. It was talking about Jesus as the Messiah and how faith in him leads to the forgiveness of sins. And if we love him, we will then do what he commands us to do. And so how this actually happens in practice, the disciples go out from Jerusalem and they start doing their thing and they start to make these proclamations, these statements, bold, subversive, radical, revolutionary statements that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? And what starts to develop, they start to tell stories. It starts to happen orally. They just 
tell the story because people couldn't read. Most people weren't schooled. And they start to tell us. And what starts to develop is, a, is what we call, or what scholars call, the Jesus tradition. There's a really good book. It looks like I've read, but I haven't. But if you want to do some more reading, that would be a really, really good book to read, right? Right? But what scholars have started to recommend, realize now is that there was a Jesus tradition. And this, like, maybe I'm just a Bible nerd and an absolute geek, right? But this kind of stuff fascinates me, right? Because I cannot understand how this Jesus movement has become what it is today. Today, two billion people around the world, two billion people call themselves followers of Jesus. Unbelievable. But it all started back here. And they didn't even have a New Testament. Right? And they're remembering the story of this man, Jesus. And this Jesus tradition starts to develop. And they start to tell the stories of the people he healed and the things he taught. And a body, I don't know exactly how this worked. Nobody really does. But some kind of tradition, some kind of loose kind of, if I use the word curriculum, or, 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 or understanding of body of work that helps us understand who Jesus was. And the apostles passed this on. And this developed over time. Let, let, me, let me show you an example and what's really, really helpful to understand this a little bit better, right? Again, sorry if this is, sounds technical, but I, I find it really helpful. The Gospels, you have to know, were written last, right? Even though they come first in the New Testament. They were written probably around the end of the first century, like maybe around 80, between 80 to 100. All Paul's letters are written around 80, you know, 50, 60 kind of time. So the churches that are being established... How are they being established, and what are they being established in? It's certainly not, you know, just all, oh, I've got a nice building, and, you know, I've got a really good social media campaign. Well, you know what I mean? It was, they were being established in the teachings of Jesus that the apostles carried. They are being taught the ways of Jesus. And a tradition, if you wanted to use that word, started to emerge that got rooted in the life of local churches being planted in pagan Gentile territory. It's phenomenal. And so here's an example. When Paul was writing to the Thessalonians with the Spirit of God moved, this is what he says. So this is, a, this is before the Gospels are written, okay? Way before. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you're living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what, look, what instructions we give you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So they're linking these instructions, these teachings, back to the teachings of Jesus himself. Are you with me? That was not very comforting, right? <clears throat> the, the, <laughs> thank you. The body of teaching, uh, the body of teaching that started to develop, we're not quite sure how this developed, but it did. And Paul referred to them throughout his letters, right? He refers to them. And if, if, you, if, you, if you know your Bible a little bit, you'll know sometimes that Paul refers to the deposit, the traditions, the faith. These were things that got handed down. And they, they then became like authoritative. It's interesting. Peter talks in his scriptures, in his letters, about how Paul's letters had almost become scripture. 
He validates them as the kind of word of God that had been passed from Jesus. The term tradition that Paul uses is the Greek word from the Greek is from the Greek word paradosis, which which kind of means things that have been passed on. So these teachings <laughs> that Jesus, who's come into our many of our lives and rocked our world and turned it upside down because his life and his teachings and what he's done and how he's lived is so enthralling and captivated our hearts. The early church is being established through the words of Jesus. And so we see this. We see this kind of story starting to take shape in the early churches. Let me just give you a few examples. In 1 Corinthians 15, right? This is the story of Jesus. Sorry, that's a wee bit cramped. Let me just read it. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. This is the story of Jesus. Here's, this is the gospel. This is the gospel right here. I'm reminding you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you indeed received and on which you also stand. Throughout it, you're also being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I, look, I handed on to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul got something from Jesus. And now he's passing on from Jesus what he got to these early churches. And this is it. What did he pass on? Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? The New Testament. No. Because it hasn't been written yet. He's, he's actually penning it as he writes this. He's talking about the Old Testament. In accordance with everything that's been written, Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. That Christ died for our sins. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, who's the other word for Peter. And then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of who are still living Though some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James. And then all, then to all, look, to all the apostles. Last of all, as one to one born abnormally, Paul says, he appeared to me. All right? And so these apostles have been encountered by Jesus, and they're passing this on. And this is the message they're passing on, right there in the middle. All right? And these things probably became songs and hymns. These were the worship songs of the first century. Here's another one. Philippians 2. Do you know this one? Yeah, this was probably a hymn. Imagine putting a, Caroline could have sung this. We could have put our own song to it or something this morning, right? In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And this is probably the song of the early church, one of the songs. Because this is the gospel. This is the good news. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? That's the gospel. This is the apostles' doctrine. This is what was passed down. I could read you others, but it won't take any more time. And so the church referred to this core gospel message in two distinct ways, right? Now, these two ways overlap. One was called the kerygma. These are the Greek words, right? So stick with me, right? One was the kerygma, which is the preaching, and the other was the didache, which was the teachings. Now, let me explain those to you properly, all right? You still with me? <laughs> 
I love you guys, right? The kerygma, right? The kerygma means the proclamation. That's what the word means in Greek, or the preaching, okay? And uh, the core gospel message, the core of the uh, apostles' doctrine, this was the kind of core elements of the good news. Then the Didache, which we'll look at in a moment, it kind of filled it out with what it meant for your life. But this was the kind of proclamation. This is, the, this is what they proclaimed. And as I said, it was done orally. It was the announcement of Jesus and who he was. Now that, um, that probably seems, maybe this seems very obvious, the story of Jesus. But what I'm trying to help us get at this morning is we don't always tell the story of Jesus. We, we kind of reduce it, or, or it's become to mean something else to us, or we've been scared into salvation. And all of these things, but what we don't really actually know the story of Jesus Christ. This, the gospel is the story of Jesus. And if we trust the proclamation of the story of Jesus, it will do its work without us having the fear monger. Right? So we tell the story of Jesus in all its fullness so that people can submit to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus had come into the world. He was the fulfillment of the promises of God that God had given to Israel. And through his life and death, God was bringing forgiveness and establishing the community, and he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. When you read the early sermons, okay, there were sermons, there was preachers in the early church. Stephen before the Sanhedrin, Peter at Cornelius' house, and Paul before Festus and Felix and all those kind of stories. When you read the gospel preachers, that's what they preached. Jesus Christ is Lord. These were the core elements of the kerygma. I've just said them, but I'll say them again. Jesus was sent to Israel by God. He went about doing good. The Jews put him to death. God raised him up. The apostles saw him and ate with him, and they were ordered to preach his message. Jesus is coming back. He's the judge of the living and the dead, and all who trust their lives into him will be forgiven of their sins. And all of this was predicted by the prophets. Over 300 prophecies predicted the person and the work of Jesus Christ, right? Now, in case you think that's like normal and just like standard, right? This was completely confrontational, radical, revolutionary language in two ways. It was revolutionary to the Jews, first and foremost, because if the apostles are preaching this, they're saying, this is the one that you've been waiting for. I know you know your scriptures off by heart, and I know the Pharisees have all of these different things that they can pin on the Messiah. But this one, this carpenter from the back streets of Nazarene, he's the one. He's the one that you've been waiting for. And the they just couldn't believe it, many of them. So can you understand when the disciples were asked by Jesus himself, who do you say that I am? You know that story? And they all go, Ooh, well, some say you're John the Baptist. And some say you're maybe the prophet incarnated. And they're all kind of bluffing, aren't they? They're all like, they love Jesus. They've been hanging out with him. But when it comes to nailing your colors to the mask, who really is... Who is the Lord? Who is the Messiah? Are you prepared to say that? They're all like, nobody says it. 
except for Peter. You are the Christ. You're the Christ. That means you're, you're the Messiah, the anointed one. You're the one that these 300 prophets, you're that one. And they've just been hanging out with Jesus every day and, and, and wondering, could it be or could it be? And then, and then Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter or Simon, and on this rock I will build my church. Yeah, that's what Jesus, and then all the rest of the boys go, that's what I was going to say to you, Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> they're thinking, yep, yep, now no, Peter said it, we're all in as well. This is why it was such a, a powerful statement to say Jesus is Lord. And it was also controversial to the Romans who occupied the whole area at the time because they were the superpower and they used language like this, Caesar is Lord. They used language like Caesar is the firstborn from the dead. They used language like Jesus or Caesar is the one in the image of God. And so if you're a Jew against Roman oppression, of which they believe Caesar is Lord, and you happen to say, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the rabbi, that all of these ragtag fishermen are following. He is Lord. You can get yourself killed for that kind of a statement. This is the kind of language that gets you in big, big trouble. And so the reason I'm teaching this, and we want to teach this, is first of all, because it's so important, because it's part of um it's 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 it, you know it's it's part of the flow of this series, but also because I want us to realize how powerful the statement is. Not just as we said out loud, but actually for our own lives. So here's here's the question, here's the implication and application for our own lives. Will will we dare to say for God and his glory alone? Will we dare to cut all other soul ties to any other thing that would rival the lordship of Jesus in our lives? Will I do that? Will I get off the throne of my own heart? Will I put my career at his feet? Will I put my ideology at his feet? Will I put my political thoughts at his feet? Will I put my other loves and affections at his feet? Is Jesus Christ Lord? Will Jesus Christ be Lord in our lives? And will we be a church? And I want to say something here, and I, I, I want to be careful. But I think, I think in this kind of turbulent political time that we're in, Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I, I watched something yesterday, and it's not because I want to talk about whether I'm pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit or whatever, right? Because everybody's, um, to be honest, I'm like you, confused, bored all of those kind of things and kind of feeling challenged to pray more than ever. But, you know, I heard Ian Paisley Jr. yesterday or the other day on a platform, right? Now, I have no problem with Ian Paisley Jr. as a, as a person. I'm not, and I'm not making a political statement here. Nothing to do whether you're pro or anti. But on a stage for the Leave campaign on Thursday, he r rallied up everybody that was there and he said this statement. He said, the good book says, on the, uh, the, the good book says, the good words to build your house on the rock. And we build it on the rock of the British Union. 
Like that, right? So I'm telling you this not, not, to be, um, not, not to get political, right? But I'm telling you it as a shepherd of this flock. That one, do not be seduced by people using the scriptures, right? To say that anything else is the rock other than Christ Jesus. It's not Jesus and anything. It's Jesus. Jesus is Lord. King Billy is not Lord. King James is not Lord. And once you attach your nationality to the lordship of Jesus, that is really bad theology. And it's an idol, right? So in this kind of uncharted waters that we find ourselves, the reason that we need to go back to the apostles' doctrine is because it's powerful language. Not everybody will like us if we say Jesus is Lord plus no one. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And every other thing, every other thing bows at his feet, right? So we need to pray for our politicians first and foremost, right? We need to pray for those in authority. That's what the Bible tells us to do. But Jesus is our king. Jesus is our president. Jesus is our leader. He's our savior. And then we need to pray for real, real wisdom as we try to live that out in the public square. But I say that to you today because that's how Christianity, right, gets muddled up with sometimes when we purport a message, add a couple of scriptures to it, right, to help validate our form of something that's not Jesus. I said it, right? The issue for many in that day is that <clears throat> people just didn't expect Jesus to be who he was, but he did. And they had to emphasize not just his life, but his teachings. So we have the charisma, and then just to take us home here in the last five or ten minutes, he had the, we have the, the Didache, right? Now, so, the, so the charisma was this proclamation, Jesus is Lord, his life, his death. His resurrection, his ascension, the fact he's coming back to save the living and the dead, and in him is the forgiveness of sins, right? Jesus is Lord. The Didache kind of fills that out. Well, what does that mean then? The Didache in Greek is literally the word in the Greek for the teachings, okay? Now, these things overlap, okay? It's just helpful, and it's a good distinction for teaching, right? But it's, um, they're all kind of part of the same thing. And the pattern of teaching became developed over the first century as the church grew and eventually became known as the Didache. This word literally means the teaching in Greek and refers to the teachings Christ, uh, Christ taught them. Paul then goes on in his letters to refer to them as the faith that deposit the sound doctrine. And so this teaching helped you develop what, sorry, this teaching that developed was a call to what you were believing in Jesus actually meant for your life. What did it mean for your marriage? In a patriarchal system where men ruled the roost and men lorded it literally over women in all sorts of ways, what did this now mean if you were a follower of Jesus? Again, it's not nice little statements. It's radical stuff. It's men, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wow. It's in Corinthians, Paul says to the man and the wife, he says to the woman, treat, um, treat your husband's body as your own standard in that culture. But then he doesn't finish her. Men, treat your woman's body, your woman's, your wife's body. <laughs> Sorry, I was a bit of Northern Ireland coming in there, right? Treat 
your wife's body as your own. Radical. He's breaking all the paradigms there because this new liberating message of Jesus Christ is going to change marriages. It's going to change homes. Husbands, fathers, do not provoke your children onto wrath. All the ones that were vulnerable, the kind of weaker classes in that century are getting liberated and empowered and elevated. This is why the apostles' doctrine is so important, because it's the teachings of Jesus. And this is what Paul was establishing these early churches in. Your interaction with the world around you. How are you going to do that? How are you going to live your faith out in front of your pagan, unbelieving friends? You're going to love them, and you're going to seek to live a quiet and peaceful life. How are you going to live when political leaders are spurting off other things? How are you going to do that? Paul says you're going to pray for them. You're going to pray for them. And you're, so that we may live a quiet and peaceable life, he said to Timothy. Part of us wanting to see the shalom of God rests on the people of God praying for those in authority. The, the, this was the didache. And so there was a way Jesus lived, and the apostles were teaching that way. Remember, remember, Jesus never said, here's the truth, you have to believe it. He said, here's a way. Come and follow it. Come and lay down your life. And that's why the early apostles were called the followers of the way. These followers of Jesus, following the ways of the rabbi, realizing that what Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And this is how Paul is helping the early churches do this. It's unbelievable. And Jesus is coming and filling up the Old Testament, filling up the law to show us that the fulfillment, Jesus came, and that this, is, this is why Paul is teaching all of these things, because Jesus came and fulfilled the law by saying, if you love God with everything you've got, every part of you, every fiber of your being, heart, soul, mind, strength, and body, and you love your neighbor as yourself, then you will fulfill the law. All the Ten Commandments, and I think there were 613 other commandments on top of that. He said, on these, all the law, the Torah, and the prophets, right? On these, all of these, all of these rules, if you want to put it, all, all the law and the prophets, hang on this. Love God, with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Lay down your life. It's not a, a, a mild, wishy-washy, the way we talk about love today. It's a rugged commitment to sacrificial living, which Jesus embodied ultimately on the cross, right? And that's going to change the world. That's going to change it all. And so um, this is what we call the Jesus Creed. And Paul is taking this kind of message, and the other apostles, they're taking this message that Jesus has showed them, they're passing it on to the church, and they're establishing them in the faith because of that. And here's the, here's so, um, there's, I hadn't time, actually, but I can get your Bible references for all of them. And so the Didache doesn't come as one kind of PDF document, right? But if you look at all the different letters that are written, here's the core themes. Reform your conduct, first and foremost. So you know those passages that says, put off this kind of living, Colossians. Put off, you know, the lusts of the flesh. Put off greed. Put off selfishness. Put off those things. And put on kindness and all of those things. So reform your conduct, the virtues, the fruit of the Spirit. 
family relationships. I just mentioned them. How husbands and wives love each other in a Christian home. There's all the stuff in there, how to love your spouse who isn't a believer as well. Because often people are just kicked out and they're like, no, 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 don't do that. Pray for them. Love them. Live a life of godliness before them so that they may too be one. It's all in there in the Bible. True community. How to love one another as the family of God. Our conduct to outsiders. How to submit to government authorities and how to be responsible responsible in sober and watchful living. These are the things that Paul taught the churches which he had received from Jesus, right? This was the dedicate, how to live your life. And there's a whole series I could preach there, just to each, each one of them. But we're not today. But just to give you a, a bit of a synopsis of what that involved. And then finally, as we just bring this home, if that was what was taught, the story and the teachings of Jesus, how was it taught? It was taught on the job. It was a missionary doctrine. It wasn't just you sitting and listen to me like you're doing now for, for lots and lots. It wasn't like classroom style. It was on the job. They were hearing some stuff in this kind of context, of course, but they were doing the stuff. They were getting involved in doing what the apostles did. The word for apostle is the word envoy. It was an ambassadorial role. And so they were, um, to say the people persevered in the apostles' doctrine isn't to say, well, they persevered in the apostles' doctrine. You know, they held a strict line. They were defenders of the truth. You know, they, that's not what it's getting at. It was to say that they were learning and teaching people on the go how to walk in the ways of Jesus. They were orientated around the teachings of Jesus, which was always carrying an impulse to go beyond where they'd been so others could know about the person of Jesus. I love this quote of Eugene Peterson's, Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. We assimilate it, take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized. Thanks. Looking at the doctor there to help me. <laughs> into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism, justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in the company of the Son. Right? I love that, isn't it? It's like the Word of God, not just as a Bible study, but the Word of God taken into our whole being and incarnated in acts of love and of justice and of worship to Jesus. This was the apostles' doctrine, and that means it wasn't merely verbal instruction. It was the demonstration of the kingdom of God. You laid hands on the sick to see them healed. You served the poor. You proclaimed the lost. It was words, it was works, and it was wonders. It was all of those. That's what the proclamation of the kingdom was. And people got schooled in the way of the apostles by following them. And, and to finish, it was totally reliant on the Holy Spirit. I, I love this. Just, it, just, it just completely blows my mind that this bunch of, you know, just normal men and women like you and me could be the instigators for the greatest movement that has ever taken, has ever come on the face of the planet. And all they had 
was the three years that they'd had with Jesus and the Holy Spirit to guide them, to help them, to direct them, to give them the wisdom they need in order to do and unfold the Great Commission. It, it, and that shouldn't be a surprise, even though it's fascinating. Isn't this what Jesus told them in John 14? All this I have spoken while still with you. But the, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Why would we ever try to plant churches and lead churches and do anything for Jesus without the Holy Spirit? He's the one that brings it all to our remembrance. And they're totally reliant on the Holy Spirit. And as we go through this series, we're going to see this more and more. The Holy Spirit is there everywhere, directing, guiding, releasing, doing all of that. The apostles had so much stuff to navigate. Honestly, cultural barriers. Jews and Gentiles sitting together, having a meal. Oh my goodness. Just never happened. How are they going to do that? Without Jesus. The Holy Spirit. He, he's going to help. They had the issue of circumcision. They had structural issues. How are we going to grow this thing and keep serving the poor and keep to, how are we going to do that? How, how are we going to deal with the monumental growth? How are we going to deal with the idolatry? How are we going to deal with these Corinthians? Holy smoke. Going into this church and like there's all sorts of immorality going on. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? They're only going to do that through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And so to apply this to us as we finish. How, 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 are we, how are we going to see what we long to see? How are, we long, how are we going to see it all? What if all the kind of people that nobody else really expects to come to church start coming? What if all sorts of problems start to arise? What if they believe different things about angels? What if they believe different things about Mary? What if they believe different things about Brexit? <laughs> what are we going to do about that? Those are the kind of problems that we need to be looking for because it's a sign that God's at work and then we need the wisdom, the total reliance. Like you can't go to chapter and verse to tell you exactly about how you should do certain things literally. What you need is the spirit of the text that wrote it in and alive amongst us to inform us and help us in how to do it. Yeah? And so we want to be people as we finish. This is how we summarize discipleship. This is how we want to summarize the discipleship going forward. There you go. Following Jesus in all of life. And I'm going to talk more about that next week. Following Jesus in all of life. Discipleship is not coming to discipleship class. Discipleship is not just doing a Bible study. As good as those things are. Discipleship is not just coming to the midweek. Right? Discipleship is not just having a one-on-one -on -one mentor. All of those things may be part of discipleship. But true discipleship is following Jesus in all of life. Is he Lord of all? And therefore, does that affect every aspect of our lives? This is why we need to be devoted to the apostles' doctrine. Amen. Stand with me and let me pray. Then we're going to have some tea and coffee.